Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Amen. Good morning. Appreciate that. All right, well, uh, it's good to be here with you. I've been thinking about this in sermon prep. I've started off sermons with that line for years. It's, it's good to be here with you. It resonates a little deeper right now than maybe it did before. But um, last week, we leaped headfirst into a new sermon series over the book of, uh, or over the Beatitudes, which is the opening sequence of Jesus' sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Now, uh, those Beatitudes, those beginning statements there, I believe, are going to be particularly helpful to us uh, as we kind of wade through the reality of what 2020 has been uh, and, and what it really still has coming for us in uh, the political process and the election. So we'll do just a little bit of work. I, I don't want to rehash the whole message um, by any means, but we need to kind of uh, get a little bit of, uh, of stuff kind of foundational so we understand that in order for today uh, to make sense. If you weren't here last week, uh, we do have our podcast back up and running. We're going to kind of try and get that going uh, regularly. Again, we kind of had to take care of live stream and then we'll get that. So you can go back and listen uh, there, but we'll go over a couple of those things today. Uh, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount this message Um, with the cultural backdrop of two different groups of people fighting against each other. They were fighting over whose view of happiness and flourishing was right, uh, who was was correct about how things should be done and what was best for uh, the people, the Jewish people, one of the larger groups of that day. Uh, they wanted to fight to be faithful to the God of Israel and their heritage and their rules. They believed that flourishing and, and happiness came from uh, kind of keeping in favor with God by obeying God's rules, while the other group of people, the Romans, the Greco-Roman culture, uh, they by and large did not believe in or care for the God of Israel. Uh, So because of that, they believed that flourishing kind of came not with anything to do with God, but really out of the life that you could carve out for yourself. Uh, They wanted to forge power, wealth, pleasure, all the things that they want out of life uh, in order to be happy. They kind of lived under the moniker of of seize the day, carpe diem, YOLO, just kind of get what you want and have fun because tomorrow we're going to die. This is what they believe. So as you can tell, those are extremely different ways to view uh, the world and kind of how things should be done. This old school, new school flavor kind of goes on there. And at that exact moment where these two views of how to flourish and be happy are, are, are kind of warring against each other, Jesus enters the scene and goes, hey, I've got a third option for you. Uh, there, there's a third path for happiness and flourishing, and, and it's different than, than theirs. And he lays out this path in the Beatitudes in the entire Sermon on the Mount, and clearly uh, what he lays out is, is not the same as what the Jewish culture was living under, and it was definitely not the same as what the Roman culture wanted, but it was uh, what we'll call the third path, the path of the kingdom of God. So we've not hidden the fact that the election season is coming Uh, And in many ways, it's going to be a bit of a boiling point for the U.S. in which tensions will be high. Uh, Truth claims or claims of how you'll find happiness and flourishing, those will be many. And in that exact moment, it's a perfect time to hear Jesus go like, here though, let let me show you how to live. Uh, Let me show you how grace should work itself out on the stage of your everyday life. So, So the hope is, church, that we would be ready and the Holy Spirit would work through.
through us in this series so that we don't get lost in the noise of the culture, but we end up uh, really lost in the call of the Savior to believe in him, that his plan is better, to be a tangible and real light into the darkness around us, to be real salt to a world that is really decaying. As Jesus' Beatitudes opened up, last week we covered number one, that was blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now we have to understand that one in order to move on uh, because the Beatitudes, they, they kind of build or at least they work together in a way that if you don't get the first one, the second one's not going to make a a lot of sense to you and it kind of builds in that way. So to be poor in spirit is to completely understand that you have nothing, absolutely nothing of value built up into your account spiritually on your own. Essentially, it is to come really close to the hard reality uh, that we have a really great need and that that need has left us completely unable to deal with our brokenness and there's nothing we can do to fix it. Our sin has marred us in a big, big way and we, we have nothing that can buy our way out of it on our own. Charles Spurgeon says this, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. Uh, the way to walk into the kingdom of God is first realize that you can't do that on your own. It's only when you grasp a hold of your need and inability uh, personally, your your poor in spiritness, that you can thereby grasp a hold of the grace of Jesus for you. Uh, We call this kind of an emptying of the pockets spiritually, where we no longer try and kind of store up good works for ourselves to earn God's love or favor. And we also no longer really depend on uh, maybe possessions or experiences to kind of mute the reality that something is kind of wrong inside of us. In this emptying of our pockets spiritually, we cast all hope on Christ and on Christ alone. And there we can be filled with his righteousness Beautiful works can happen in our heart. And Jesus says, when you do this, uh, this is how you get to happiness and flourishing. So we will add the second beatitude to that this morning, Matthew 5, uh, verses 1 through 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then today, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the word of the Lord, and hearing this, the path to flourishing and happiness, Jesus says, it's through mourning. We're going, what? what? Did, you, did you read the wrong one? Makarios, fl- flourishing through mourning. This one would have been odd for the crowd, and it feels a little bit like a head-scratcher to us. It seems as if Jesus says, happy are the people who are unhappy. Happier are the people who mourn. We've got to figure out what to do with that. Now, I get that we have subtle variations on our view of happiness or flourishing, right? For uh, the, the Richards family, it is most likely having something to do with a beach and a fishing rod. It looks like a Corona commercial. That is, yeah, that's happiness. For the, <laughs> amen. For the Dreyer family, uh, it probably has... Uh, a mountaintop and zero humidity and hopefully a mountain bike. It looks more like a Jeep Wrangler commercial. Now, where these views of happiness are different, you would maybe hear those from us and nobody would balk at that. Nobody would think twice. Like, okay, you like different things. That seems completely normal. But if someone tells you, my happy place, my jam, my thing is mourning. You're like, what? Are you concussed? This is kind of what Jesus does here. 
Can you see it though? The Sermon on the Mount, literally a sermon given on a mountainside with people who sat to listen. Uh, people came curious about Jesus. Maybe they're hearing some murmurings about some things that these guys or this guy was doing. All of a sudden a crowd is, is listening. But when the crowd hears, blessed are those who mourn, I have to picture there was a dad with his children sitting there who goes, get up, this dude's crazy. We're wasting our time. We could be working. We could be going to the market. We could be doing something else. I imagine there's a very decent chance that at least one person walked away and said, I want nothing of this. Why? Well, we in the entire world love to shun mourning. We want to avoid it. We have all together, not, not they, we have all played our hand in it, built a world around our comforts and pleasures a world that helps us escape the things that we don't like and increases and overcompensates around the things that we do. Yet Jesus says, that's not the way to my kingdom. That is not the way to operate, and that's not the way to get happy, and that's not the way of flourishing. I've mentioned it before, but our, uh, my family loves to watch America's Funniest Home Videos. Um, since the boys were oddly young, they've just cracked up on guys getting hit in the parts and we just never stopped watching it. But uh, over the last maybe year, year and a half, there's been this reoccurring uh, video theme, like multiple people have done it. And it always involves a young boy, never a girl, always a boy, uh, where the dad or some family member or a friend bets them that they cannot catch a credit card falling from a wall, right? So the whole thing is, hey, I bet you can't catch this. And they're, they're holding up tight. And like, I'm going to drop it. And if you catch it, I'll give you some, some money. So the scene starts, and, and the boy's there. He's like, I'm totally going to get it. And the guy's like, okay. And, and he says, you ready? And the boy says, yes. And then he drops it, and, and the kid just, boom, slams his face into the wall, never catches it. And then everyone dies laughing because this kid just willingly got conned to throw his face in the wall for $2. Like, nobody made you do that. You were excited to do that. Side point, Judah asked the last time if he could do it. Pray for him. There's a way that the second beatitude almost feels like that kind of scenario, though, where we're getting duped into something painful willingly by another person. Yet it's not a joke and it's not a setup. It is how Jesus says that we find Macarios uh, flourishing and happiness and a way to a deep happiness, way more than the world can offer us. So maybe we should clarify, right? When you hear happy are the morning, you're like, let's dig into the original language. Maybe it means something else. Uh, so you look and the word morning is pantheo, but unfortunately it means exactly what it says. Morning means morning. It literally means to grieve, to be heavy, to be sad. There's no way to skirt around this. Jesus really said it. But he gives a beautiful promise though as well. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, I know that mourning really means what it says here. So maybe we should ask the other question, what type of mourning is he talking about, though? Because we can see, simply, look around the world around you. This is not a blank promise that anyone who mourns or is sad or grieved in any way will be comforted. We, we, we can see there's a lot of people hurting. We've been hurting before as well. And in that, we have not received any comfort at all. So there has to be a certain type of, of mourning that he is talking about that will deliver you some sort of comfort. John Stott says this line that maybe is helpful. He says, the truth is that 
There is such a thing as Christian tears. And yet too few of us ever weep them. The mourning that Jesus is talking about is less of a physical worldly mourning and more of a spiritual one, one that comes primarily over our sin. If we try and understand the Beatitudes as a large intertwined work, this makes sense, right? To be poor in spirit means that we acknowledge that we have a spiritual need because of our sin, and to mourn is to move past acknowledging that fact and then grieving that fact, right? To, to be poor in spirit is a form of confession. I am poor in spirit. Mourning is, is contrition. Poor in spirit is to acknowledge your sin. To mourn is to agonize over your sin, When Jesus speaks of mourning, he is speaking uh, specifically over personal grief, over personal sin. It does expand past this, and it applies to more than this, but it does not ever apply to anything less than this. Your and my sin and how we feel about it. So let's try and do a little bit more clarification so we don't uh, miss the boat. What does it mean and what does it not mean? This morning that Jesus speaks of is not being a miserable person in an attitude. It has nothing to do with what he's talking about here. It isn't a person who lives in self-pity about all the things that they don't like about their job, their wife, or the world around them. It isn't the sadness that you get when you lose your job or get laid off. It isn't the feeling that you have when you lose material wealth. It is definitely not FOMO, fear of missing out, that you're sad, that there was something that you didn't do. That's not what he's talking about. It is not the feeling that you get in your stomach when you do something wrong. You know that I got caught feeling? That's not where you're getting comfort here. This morning isn't uh, lamenting the consequences more than the crime or the thing that you've done wrong. And this is not also the sadness that you feel about people who won't do life your way. That has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying. Those are all forms of of worldly mourning, and that's not what this beatitude is about. Sam Storm says this mourning is not the sorrow of bereavement, but of repentance. It is personal grief over personal sin, over particular sin even. Hear this. When we stop just saying, I'm a sinner in a general sense, And I don't like my sin in a general sense, but when specific sins that we cling to on a reoccurring fashion begin to literally bother us deeply and we have tears over those, that's the type of mourning that he's talking about. When you see yourself clearly and it hurts. And the hope is that this turns to repentance where you turn away from yourself and towards Jesus because he is better. With that in mind, let me just stop and ask the question, right? Low-hanging fruit, of course I would do it. Are you now or have you ever been grieved over your sin? Like, has it ever literally caused you to be broken? Now, let's say this. Making yourself upset with yourself is not the goal of this beatitude or sermon here. Jesus isn't saying that real Christianity is a push towards self-deprecation either. But how you and I see our sin is a really important aspect to this beatitude. Not how you see your neighbor's sin or the world's sin, but how you see your own. Is sin a big deal, the ones that you commit, or is it just a general like, ah, I made a mistake? I think if you ask the Jewish crowd, 
if they had ever truly mourned over their sin, if they were honest, I think they would say no. Why? Well, because when they sinned, which they did, because we all do, they kind of knew that there'd always be a goat or a dove or a bull that could be killed. See, in the Old Testament, sin led to death and it required blood to atone for it. And they become accustomed and just quite comfortable. Oops, messed up, get me a dove, let's take care of this. All you got to do is spill an animal's blood. I don't got to feel a thing. Right, we can tend to say there's an app for that. I wonder if they believe that there's an animal for that. Oh, I did a big one. Goat's not going to work. Need a bull. Sorry, Dad. Moreover, after sacrificing an animal, they could double down on the law. I got, I got to make up for this. And I forgot to tithe off of that plant in the, in the backyard. Better go give 10%. There's a Gentile. Be mean. Go to the temple twice this week. Donate something. Pray out loud. Show, show them your Jesus-y. In other words, there was always a way to do a quote-unquote good thing that in their minds could maybe right the bad thing. They could balance out the scales, so to speak, over their mistakes, which meant Jewish leaders and many who followed them, they didn't really need to mourn that much because they didn't feel the need to. I can, I can just set it back right. I can fix it, right? There's a plan for this. I, I can do the animal thing, and I can do some right stuff. And, and, and what we find is that looks a whole lot more like Catholic penance than it did biblical faith. So they didn't need to mourn. If you ask the Romans that question, they definitely say no. Why? What use is mourning in getting me more stuff in life? It literally didn't get them anything that they wanted in life, so they didn't value it or find a need to it. They wanted more money and power and fame and wealth and pleasure and success. And mourning doesn't help you get any of those things. So why, why, why would you even think about the things wrong? Just, just move on. They would think of mourning as weakness and stupidity even because they didn't value the God of the Bible. And sin for them would be not only a non-issue but maybe an illusion. If you don't believe in God, then how do you believe in sin? To this crowd, both Jewish and Roman, what Jesus said was surprising for sure, and it cut against how they did life and faith at this point. What we have to ask ourselves is, is it surprising to us as well that Jesus asked us about mourning? Is it surprising? Like, does that defeat our view of grace? Is it foreign to us to actually be broken? Before I run the risk of losing you or weighing us down in a way that the text doesn't want, it's crucial to understand the happiness and flourishing, the makarios part of this beatitude, it does not come from the, the, the mourning per se, it comes through the comforting. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. So this text isn't about you getting uh, yourself to manufacture mourning, it is telling you that in your morning comfort will come. It isn't saying make yourself mourn right now or else God will always smite you from here on out. The message is this, hear me, when you see yourself in such a clear way that it hurts and mourning is what comes out of it, 
when you feel your poor in spirit side so strongly that it breaks you, when it seriously busts you up, in that place, the gentle and lowly Savior will meet you and comfort you. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the final explanation of the state of the church today is that they have a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. They don't know how to feel about sin because they don't understand what sin is, basically. I agree with him. To explain the hole in our doctrine of, of sin, I think it's that we misunderstand the concept of payment and absorption when it comes to our sins. We don't fully realize that our sins, they don't just disappear. Right? Like a child who doesn't understand when you flush the toilet that, that things go to a sewer and then out and then it actually has to be dealt with. Like a child who thinks when they, they flush the toilet, it's magically gone and that's how you figured out that they like flushed a tennis ball down the toilet, right? We think similarly about our sin, that it's just, that it's just gone, that it just vanishes, that doesn't have to be dealt with. But sins don't just vanish. They never have. They always bring about death. They require punishment and payment. There is no exception to this. Each sin we commit required real wounds from Jesus. Each one had to be absorbed by him. None of them just got forgotten. Each of our sins now, after we are believers, they hurt because they show us, even though he did all of that, there's still ways that we don't really trust him. Sins don't just go away. They're mistrust that we have. Our sins affect people, normally the people closest to us. And our sins tell a message to unbelievers around us what we really think about our Savior. They don't just go away. Does it mean they're not forgiven? No, but there are consequences and there are effects of them. We have to begin to see that sin is not a cosmic accident, it's cosmic treason. When we do, when we understand how big it is, and then we recognize it in ourselves, that it'll move us to a place of mourning. I still hold so much unbelief. It'll cause us to lament the ways that we don't follow Jesus very well. It'll cause us to lament the way that we talk a really good game, but we don't always live one. Romans 7, 15 through 19. I'm going to read some excerpts, not the whole thing, but the Apostle Paul says this, uh, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not know what I, or for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want, I keep on doing. This is the Apostle Paul not talking about his brother, he's talking about himself. Paul shows us something that we try and hide or suppress or not deal with very often. Uh, we, um, we oftentimes, we end up being a mystery to ourselves is what he's saying. There are clear times where we know what we should do and we actually want to do it. But then something else happens and we veer off course and we don't. We know the right thing. We plan to do the right thing. Then we go rogue and sin. We do the very opposite. And we're even looking at ourselves going, what in the world happened, man? You knew. 
this pattern of literally knowing better and yet doing it anyways, whether it be with our anger or our lies or our lust or our gossip or any number of things, it just, it just never seems to completely go away. We're not preaching a, gra- a, a grace license thing. This is not saying like, hey, it's not a big deal if you sin all the time. It's not saying sin constantly. It's just Paul's, Paul's recognizing even with my best efforts, way more sin sneaks in than I'm comfortable with. The Apostle Paul had this happen. Guys, I have this happen. You ready? You have this happen. Then what normally ends up happening is we look at ourselves and go, what is wrong with you? This inner frustration is you acknowledge the reality of what you should do and then what you did do. The hurt when you see that so much unbelief just still permeates your heart. The whole point of all this is if we see that sin is a big deal, is it something terrible, as something against God himself, and that God has done so much to save us, and then he's proved his love, and he's proved his trustworthiness, and then we realize even with all of that and our best efforts that we fall into sin, this reality will cause us to mourn. We'll tend to feel worthless, we'll tend to feel useless, in that very spot, that real spot. Keep in mind, Jesus isn't trying to take you there, but when you see yourself, you're gonna end up going there in that very place where you're mourning over the reality of what's still in your heart. Christ will comfort you with his spirit and say, I've got you. That's what Jesus is starting to say here. There are people who take this and are like, you just gotta hate your life. Just be sad all the time. You'll nail it. Not at all what he's talking about. If to be poor in spirit means that you see who you are clearly, to mourn is when you see what you've done clearly. To be a person who is poor in spirit knows that we have a need that we cannot meet on our own, and they mourn because they realize, and I've created it myself and necessitated it by the way that I have directly sinned against God. Right? Think David in the Old Testament, God, it's you I've sinned against. Jesus, with this beatitude, isn't trying to, again, get us to aim for mourning. He's showing us when you see yourself clearly and it busts you up, when all the facades are torn down and all the faking and all the Christianese and you see how weak you really are, the natural working or outworking of that vulnerable state will be mourning to have it grieve you as you scream, filthy man am I broken without hope. Romans 7, a little on, Paul speaks about that. Romans 7, 24, wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? That, that, that's, his, that, that's his outworking of I know the right thing to do and I don't do it. He's going, who's gonna save me? Then 25, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord Jesus will. Paul, after admitting that at times he 100% knows the right thing to do and still ends up not doing it, how sin is much closer than he would like, how even though Christ has, has done so much, he still falls into weakness and sin, this scary realization about, about how broken we truly are causes him to cry out, wretched man am I, who's going to deliver me, who's going to save me? This text isn't pretty. 
This isn't what you put on a coffee mug. It's an unfiltered picture of a look into your heart and mind when we just truly see our resume. But at that moment of seeing himself clearly, so clearly that despair begins to to set up and mourning begins to come out of it, he declares, thanks be to God because even though that is my reality, Jesus will still save me and deliver me. You see, when we see clearly our sin and we mourn it, then it turns to worship when we realize that Jesus still isn't leaving us, that he still covers us. When we realize all of our mess, then Jesus will still save. Jesus will still draw near to not only save, but even sympathize with you and I when we see ourselves clearly. This is part of the the mind-bending theme of a section of the book of of Hebrews that aims to show us that that we have this perfect high priest in Jesus who doesn't just uh, look to draw near and sympathize when we do well, right? That's how we feel. I nailed it this week. Jesus is so close to me. And, And then we don't nail it the next week. and We're like, he's so far away. The book of Hebrews says, no, 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 even in that weakness, when you didn't nail it that week, he draws near. He comes close. He sympathizes. He comes into your mess. When we mourn over looking at who we really are and think that surely, surely he's walking away, he draws near and comforts us. Dane Ortlund has uh, wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. I've been just kind of reading it slowly. I got like three pages in and started crying. It's not a fast book to read. But he's talking of Jesus. He says he knows what it is like to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. He knows what it is like to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he literally needed them the most. If he had lived today, every last Twitter follower and Facebook friend would unfriend him. At the exact moment when he turned 33. He who has walked through that hurt will not walk away. That's his point. He draws near when we're at our worst. Not he runs away when we're at our worst. He does not give us what we deserve. This is the beauty of the gospel that can cause your heart to flourish. Church, there's a great need to to stop turning our back on the reality of sin, to stop pretending like it's not a big deal, to stop minimizing it and, and, and tearing it off. The beauty of the gospel is that it was always for people who actually need a savior. Right? Jesus says it later in Matthew, I didn't come for the healthy but the sick. So as you see your sin clearly, yeah, try and ask Christ to help you with it. Try and ask him to help you actively fight it. And know when you don't do well and you are down, that he'll still comfort you and carry you home. I think when we see ourselves clearly, there's these images of the end of our life and, you know, I'm gonna learn so much. I'm gonna follow Jesus. I'm gonna walk up to the pearly gates. It's gonna be great. And the reality sometimes, I just wonder if we're gonna crawl in and go, please don't change your mind. The beauty is when we see our weakness, 
and set in the tension of it. That's where we begin to understand the beauty of the statement, Jesus paid it all. See, while the world around us lives for a million different things to make them happy, and while the world is caught up in trying to make themselves look good, to to Instagram filter all the things so that you only see the, the pretty, shiny, nice parts of who people are, Jesus, with his beatitude, is telling us true happiness and true flourishing is the ability to look intently at yourself with no filters and understand Christ will still be there in your mess. He'll ease the pain of your shame. This is the good news that Jesus says you can chase a million different things, but they will not satisfy your heart. Come follow me. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to pretend anymore. Garrett, you can come back up. We'll take communion. Uh, as we sing the last songs today, there was the, the, the cups in the front. If you haven't gotten one and you want to grab one, uh, feel free to do that. But here's the hope that you would see the full weight of your sin, not trying to drive yourself in shame. But as you do, you would also see the full weight of unending grace and mercy, right? You, you can take that, like, let's be honest, that little cup is nasty. As you, as you take it, you go, even, even though I'm dirty, even though I've messed up, your body and blood is still for me. You have been broken, so I don't have to be anymore. Hear him say, you are my beloved, the, the words that, that God says to Jesus, in you I am well pleased because of Jesus' righteousness, when we take no matter what our week has looked like, that's, that's the same feeling that we get, that God is well pleased. He's not angry. He's not disappointed. He doesn't want to let you go. He wants to remind you, no, no, I'm still in. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As you, as you take, you can proclaim that there's still a sacrifice. There's still the Savior. There's still his broken body and blood for me. And I pray that as we take today, that that would nourish you. Yes, you can look at yourself clearly and not be driven to destruction because he'll comfort you there. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, my hope is that you would. I don't know what you've been sold as faith or religion or Christianity. If it's just bartering and being good, but that's not the message of the gospel. The gospel says you couldn't be good, so Jesus came and saved you from yourself. Maybe today would be the day that you would rest in that and follow him. I pray that many of the rest of us would receive comfort and be built up in the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done, and that we would trust him enough to follow him. We stand and pray with me? God, I thank you for today. I thank you that we can gather in the middle of the unknown. We said it this morning, Holy Spirit, with everything being so crazy and unknown, would you make the reality of Jesus known clearly in this place? Father, thank you for your mercy. Grace upon grace upon grace is what you give people who do not deserve it. So I pray that our hearts would be encouraged in that, that we would find joy in that. 
that we'd find that your arms are a safe place to be. Father, would you comfort those who are down? Would you draw near to them? I pray that you would draw near, that when we see ourselves clearly, that you would fulfill your promise to draw near. I pray through these beatitudes that we would trust you more and more, that our heart would be stirred for you, that our affection for you would be stirred, Holy Spirit, that you would work, that you would dig into the deep recesses of our heart, the dark places that we want to leave alone, and that you would place the gospel there. Be glorified in us. I pray that our worship is pleasing, that you would meet us here. That as we take from your table today, that our hearts and souls would be nourished. We pray that in your name. Thank you for your grace and mercy. We love you. Amen. As we prepare to worship this morning, I want to share with you Psalm 19, verse 14. that says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock and my redeemer. I just want us to pray that over as we begin to sing and, and worship. So again, if you'll just close your eyes.